I'm already nervous, so that just added to my fears. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me today. Thank you, Pastor. Um, so I am Jeray McGee, and I'm the Director of Community Relations and Outreach with Thrive Women's Healthcare. I am also now the Patient Advocate Coordinator for the Albemarle Office, so I now work both on the administrative side and on the medical side. So you guys lift me up in prayer while I make that transition. Last year, we experienced an entire year as Thrive Women's Healthcare. As Patrick said, we were formerly the pregnancy centers. We have made some changes and we are moving on with a positive trajectory with the hopes that God will continue to push us forward. We just rolled out a new Culpeper facility and we are going to be rolling out a new downtown Charlottesville facility within the next two weeks. So thank you all for all that you have done for us thus far and continue to do for us. This year, our numbers have skyrocketed with new clients, especially those determined to be critical. So critical clients are those who are on the fence about caring. Um, they may strongly lead towards termination and are just undecided when they first learn about their pregnancy. STD and STI testing services have opened the door for more conversations with young women about um, sexual risk avoidance and God's plan for sex. We try to not bombard our clients with the gospel, but we want to care for them in truth and love so they understand that God loves them and we love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Um, we have a RISE presentation that is centered around the gospel. Our marketing director, Maria Webb, she has created a brochure and an application on um, our iPods at the centers, which just discuss briefly the word of God when it, when it comes to sexual risk avoidance. This year is themed around compassion, and I just want to read to you what 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I can say for myself, I have... I'm nothing without God, so to be able to rely on him and to express that to others who may not necessarily know him makes me feel good about what he's done for me and what he continues to do for me. I feel like I'm a living example. As you guys can see, I'm pregnant too, so it always helps for me to be waddling around showing everybody. <laughs> you guys, this is my eighth, my eighth. We are a blended family, and this is number eight. We're, we're, this, we're done. But um, thank you, God, for what he's done for us, right? Um, we know God is loving, gracious, and sacrificial, and he's our comforter in times of trouble. And we want the women in that not only come to our centers, but see our marketing materials to realize that as well. Compassion is the response to someone else's suffering, pain, or anguish, and the desire to alleviate that suffering. We cannot alleviate all of their sufferings completely, 
but we want them to know that we are there to help them as best as we can, and God is there to help them along the way as well. In order to cultivate compassion, we have to see their suffering for what it is, and sometimes that's hard when we have not been in situations like the women who come see us. We have um, a skewed view at times, but we have to always remember that God loves us regardless of what we do and what we've been through, and we have to show that same love. So that is what we try to do at all of our centers, regardless of the choices that our clients make. We still want them to know that we're there for them regardless. We have a post-abortive ministry for women who have had abortions in the past or may have considered one um, due to the the implications of whatever their life may hold. Um, They don't always tell us everything that's going on, of course. So we try to keep them lifted up and try to show them that we're able to assist them as best as we can um, with whatever resources we have. And we try to build good connections throughout the community so we have the ability to connect them to those resources. We're on a mission this year to help each of our patients experience the truth of Isaiah 49.10 and that they will allow God to be their shepherd and guide. So with the trajectory of Thrive Women's Healthcare, we have changed literally everything from the decor to um, our marketing materials. And that's so we can engage better with the younger population Not that we don't see individuals of all ages, but that seems to be heavily the population in which we service. So when you go into a center, you might see a really bright pink or bright, just bright colors. There are bright colors everywhere, guys. There are so many bright colors, but that's to make them feel excited to be there. Those colors are excitable for women of the specific age range that we're trying to reach out to. In 2019, we saw over 2,100 patients. We administered over 700 pregnancy tests, 400 ultrasounds, and saw 140 women change their mind. And that's important. We shared the gospel with 340 of these women. That means that those women were not necessarily inclined to believe the gospel, but once we talked to them and showed them compassion, they decided that they were going to follow Jesus. So that makes me feel good. We praise God for these encounters, but we know there are so many more out there that need to be reached. And because of that, I run around during the week throwing rack cards everywhere. So if you see a rack card, know that I've been there (laughs) and know that I'm trying to reach the masses regarding our no-cost services. It's so nice to know that people see our materials and they call and inquire about how they can be serviced. And sometimes we even have individuals call with regards to friends or family members that they know could use our services and know that they could use our care. Our care is not the same as other facilities because we are using the love of Jesus Christ when we approach these clients. 
There are a number of ways that you can partner with us to achieve our mission. And so we ask that um, if you'd like to volunteer, that would be great. We are in need of volunteers always. And if you are interested in those current opportunities, you can visit our website. And if you hear false information about us, feel free to speak out and feel free to come take a tour or, or encourage others to come take a tour of our facilities. We're always welcome for people to come see what we do so they can feel comfortable about spreading the word about what we do. If you don't come in, you don't necessarily know if what you're hearing is true or if, if you know, people just have their specific opinions. I thank you guys so much for letting me come here today. I felt so welcome by everybody who came and engaged with me and spoke to me. Um, it's so nice to be in a in a smaller church because it's it's like a family. I felt that. So you guys are really blessed to be here, and I felt blessed. Even Braxton, to those who spoke to Braxton, and he just looked at you guys. He was just waking up, so give him some grace on that. He feels welcome here, too, and we thank you for that. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Jeray. Yes. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, Jeray is, uh, excuse me, um, Braxton's almost two, so uh, he deserves a lot of grace, right? I was telling her this morning, he was kind of sleeping on Mama's shoulder, and I said, I don't think he's a morning person. Some of you can identify with that, right? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that uh, update, Jeray. And uh, again, I'm thankful that as a church we can support a ministry like this right here in our community. And it's always encouraging to hear the numbers especially and, and what changes a life more than the gospel, right? So praise the Lord. So thank you for being willing to give as well. All right. Well, let's pray together, and uh, we'll listen to what the Lord has for us today. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the joy of gathering together. And uh, Lord, thank you for uh, the worship time through song. And now that we are here in uh, your presence, we desire to worship you through the reading and the understanding of your word. So we pray that you give us that discernment today. And thank you too, Father, for uh, people like Jeray and other many, many volunteers uh, who serve this community and, and really reaching people with the gospel in very difficult circumstances, very trying circumstances. Thank you that you are a God of grace. And uh, Lord, you have judged our sin through your son and we can have freedom and forgiveness through him. And so we praise you and thank you. And now give of our hearts to you this morning that we would hear you wor your word speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's get back into our, our study in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Find your place there, if you will. Uh, the series title is The Foundational Truths from the Sermon on the Mount. Now you remember that throughout this sermon, and for those of you that are just joining us and have not heard this before, those of you that have, this will be uh, just a reminder to you. Our Lord is presenting a picture of his people, the heart of his people specifically dealing with the heart issues, the attitudes of the heart. And that's really the key factor in all of this because he wants to make sure 
that there's no confusion about how a person gets to heaven. Now, Jesus at this point, of course, obviously has not sacrificed himself. He's not become the debt payer yet, but he's building to this, and he's calling people to himself. But the way to do that is to show a picture between those who belong to the kingdom and those who do not. And so you remember last week, and we'll show it again here real quickly. I'll go through it much more quickly. Uh, the stick men. And so we'll see the picture that the Lord has been giving to us. So if we can put that up there, let's just pay attention to this guy here. Now, I tried to find a little bit different picture of a person who is uh, living the life of godliness and is happy because of what God has done. But I thought this burden on this man's back was a good picture of the way we often feel in this life, carrying the burden of our sin. But the, the Lord has certainly removed that from us. Get a little bit of ringing back there. If we could turn that volume down just a little bit. So first of all, we learn that poor in spirit, this person is destitute spiritually. Nothing to bring to God. Nothing that he has of himself becomes a beggar. He mourns over that sin. And this is key to us, beloved, that we see our sin and come to this place of mourning. And that creates a gentleness about us or a meekness that is power under control. It's not that we want to elevate ourselves, but we want to elevate what God has done, and so we're humble before him. We then hunger and thirst for more righteousness. If that's you, you understand that when you came to Christ and you saw these truths, that you knew you needed more of God. It's the cleanliness that God puts in our hearts, and we just want more and more of that. That's what the Lord is talking about here. And that person becomes merciful because they see the mercy that God has given to them, and you know that yourself. How can you not extend mercy? Jeray just talked about that. How can we not extend mercy to those that are caught in difficult places in order to help them to see the truth? Because we've been shown such great mercy. And this is the point. And that person desires to be more and more holy before the Lord, pure in our motivations. Now, this was the one we did last week, which was the peacemaker. All of these beatitudes now make up a person who then understands that I must be also a peacemaker. In other words, it's my job now to be the one who brings people to Christ. Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes we have to say and do the hard things in order to help them to see the truth. Now, this other guy is just the opposite of all of this. The character of the self-righteous, he is self-sufficient, doesn't need God. He sees little to no sin in himself, proud of his own righteousness and his own accomplishments spiritually and everything else, works to make himself more righteous in the eyes of other people. Little, if any, mercy. In other words, I did it, so you figure it out yourself. And then there is no sense of humility and no sense of desire of holiness, but a false purity. And this person is really more of a peacekeeper because he or she thinks more of himself than he does of another person. And so it's easier to be a peacekeeper than it is to be a peacemaker. All right, so that's a real quick blitz. So if you need more clarity on that, go back and look at the other messages for those of you that are just joining us. Those are all on, the, on our website. All right, now, so now what's really amazing about all of this is is that the person that Jesus is describing here is the one who is truly happy. And I'm talking about the one on your right the one that Jesus is describing here in these Beatitudes, because happiness, and this is kind of the underlying theme behind all of this, is not based on external circumstances. And that's just a reality. It's not based on material things or what the self can produce. And that is so contrary to everything that the world teaches us and everything we strive for. This is why it's such a radical change here. What the Lord is teaching us is that happiness or true happiness is really found in the Lord himself. 
There's nothing else that brings this kind of joy and contentment. Happiness because of who he is and what he has done for us and what he wants. Happiness comes from knowing that we are totally dependent on him. Now, I hope you listen carefully this morning because I really just want to give an introduction. I was going to try to cover all of what we're going to look at in two messages in one, but I realized it was just way too much for us to take in. And so we're going to just really begin to look at the introduction of some of these things, of this, this last beatitude. But this is all in support of what Jesus is saying here. Happiness comes from the Lord. The true believer becomes like a child. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. If you don't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, in one particular instance, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's the answer to the question, right? Jesus is continually answering the same question. How do I know for sure that I'm going to get to heaven? Well, here in Matthew, in 18 at least, he's saying you must become like a child. Whoever, in verse 4, then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want to kind of play two pictures in your mind for you here as we look at how we often think in this life, and there's a sense of, rightness in that because of what we live in the sinful world, but then from God's perspective of what he sees in us. So if you just think with me for a second, let's go back to our childhood minds for a minute. And let's think like a child for just a second. Every day for a child is a moment that just kind of comes as it comes. Remember that? You think you didn't have to even worry about what was going on. There's no stress about anything. As a child, you don't have to concern yourself with where am I going to get my food. I don't have to worry about who's going to pay my bills or where I'm going to find my clothes. I don't have any responsibility as a child other than the ones mom and dad set upon. That is to be respectful and those kind of things. But that's not really the point. The point is we are totally dependent as children to care or to we're dependent on our caregivers, whomever those people might be. That's the life of a child have no responsibility. They are helpless on their own. You think about those little babies. Even if we were just mentioning Braxton this morning, he is totally dependent. He's almost two years old. Totally dependent. Your children, totally dependent on you for everything. Jesus is saying you must become that way. That's a radical change from the way we are taught in this life. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't become adults, but even in our adulthood, God the Father... Just that, as our Father, wants us to depend on Him 100% for everything. Children have no achievements to offer. They have no accomplishments to really promote themselves and to say, look at how great I am. Look at how amazing I am. And you go back to your own childhood, you remember that, again, each day just kind of came and went. I mean, I, for one, and I hope you can say this about yourself, I, for one, grew up in a, in a great Uh, setting. I didn't have to do anything. I'm saying that as an adult now, understanding that's not always good. But as a child, every day was fun, at least what I remember. I mean, every day was joyful. I didn't have to worry about the things that my dad worried about. I didn't have to concern myself about the things that my mom concerned herself with. I just had to make sure I did what they called me to do. I remember when it was time for dinner, Mom just had the food on the table. Now, of course, as I got older, I understood that a little differently. But I'm thinking as a child here. 
It was just their responsibility. I didn't have to concern myself with whether the bills were going to be paid. Dad just took care of those kind of things. I wasn't concerned about anything like that. And all of that, the point is, really made me happy. There was no reason for me to be concerned about the things that life teaches us to be concerned about. And I want you to follow this path with me because I don't want this to be confusing for you. I'm not saying that we aren't to grow up into maturity and deal properly with the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. There are many people who just ignore their responsibilities. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about living a life in the midst of our responsibilities but trusting our eternal Father to meet our needs. And there's a sense in which God is saying to us, if you will do that, if you will trust me, I will give you a contentedness like you've never experienced before. And this is the picture of God's people. This is what Jesus is describing here. This person who sees their sin, mourns over it, is like a beggar looking for more and more righteousness, totally dependent on God, is the person who will be the most contented. And that's God's point in all of this. Paul said, in fact, to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, my God will supply all your needs. Now just think about that. That's a verse that we often quote a lot. My God will supply all your needs. Now you kind of want to have a conversation with Paul at that point and say, really, Paul? I mean... Is all really meaning all? Well, that's what the text says. And we're taking the word of God for what it says. The Lord will provide all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You say, well, I'm not going to get into all this, but you might say, well, how in the world is God going to provide for this and this and this and this and this? I don't know how God's going to provide. The point is that God said he would in his own way, in his own time. And notice in verse 20 of Philippians 4, Paul says at the end of that, Now to God and Father, excuse me, to God our Father, be glory forever and ever. In other words, Paul is just exploding with this heart of praise because he realizes that all I need to do in this life is be dependent on my Father. It's his responsibility to make sure that my needs are met and that I'm understanding this. And that made him extremely happy. And the point is, this description of this child of God that Jesus is giving to the people while he's sitting on the mountain is saying just this, happy are my people. If I could summarize them all, it would be happy are my people because they are totally 100% dependent upon me. That's how he's describing them. So happy are those Listen to how this works. Who become beggars. Why? Because God will provide salvation. Happy are those who come to him mourning over their sin because God will provide comfort. Happy are those who are humbled by God because they will inherit the earth. Look at the provision. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness because he will provide spiritual nourishment. Happy are those who are merciful because God has provided great mercy and happy are those who are holy in other words cleansed of their sin because God has provided a place for them in other words they will live forever with God in paradise I don't know about you but I'll trade everything that this world tells me that will give me something that will give me happiness for what the Lord has said here the basic 
summarization of it all is that God says to us as his people, listen, it is not your job to worry about everything that you have no control over. That's my job. It is God's job to meet our needs. Yes, we be smart, we live in wisdom, we make correct decisions based on what the Lord has taught us, but internally we live this happy, blessed life because we are 100% confident that God is going to provide everything that we need, whether it be spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, it doesn't matter. God will provide it in his own way. The problem we have is we have our ideas of what provision is and what we need, and God has another idea. God has provided for us food, he provides shelter for us, and he provides the grace to get us through the details of our lives. Unfortunately, we have this idea that, no, the house has got to be this size or the car has got to be this size or look this way, the clothes have to be this way, or it's just not good enough. That's a man-made sinful inclination. That's not what the Lord is talking about. All right, now, for today, and this is going to be just the part one, I've titled this, Happy Are Those Who Are Persecuted. Happy Are Those Who Are Persecuted. So stand with me just for a moment. Let's read these verses this morning, beginning in verse 10 through 12. And again, we'll only get through part of this. So now this, we've come to the last beatitude here. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, praise the Lord. You may be seated. Now... In this final beatitude, in this final beatitude, the Lord makes, to me, the most incredible statement of all of them. Look again what he says. Happy are those who are persecuted. That's a really weird statement. I mean, in anybody's human mind, that is an incredibly weird statement. So he gives verses 11 and 12 to give us some clarification on this. And we haven't seen that in these other Beatitudes. We've all had one verse instruction. But here he gives us more than that. We won't get to all of it today, but he's, we'll, we'll cover that next time, what he's saying here. I just want to give you the, the inference of it all. So you might be saying, like I was as I read through this, okay, I'm not so sure I like this persecution part. I mean, I can humble myself, that's one thing, and come to God. I can give of myself by abandoning everything. I can even understand the hungering and the thirsting for more of his righteousness. If all of that's going to show me a heart of happiness and bring me happiness, I can be merciful to those it's hard to be merciful to at times. If that's going to bring a sense of happiness, I can even live a holy life for him with his help to create this sense of happiness in me that the Lord will give. But how in the world is being persecuted by somebody going to bring any sense of happiness? I mean, that's where most people struggle. And I have to admit, this message, as I was studying through it, brought a lot of conviction to my heart. It really did. When Jesus got to this point, I think as I was sitting with him on the mountainside and going through the first Beatitudes, I was gulping a little bit. But when I got to this one, I kind of was like, Okay, Lord, you're going to have to explain this one to me because my humanness doesn't get this. And I'm talking from my human perspective, not my spiritual perspective. 
Well, so to answer some of that, we need some explanation. Let's start with this. If you're going to live the way God wants you to live, the world is going to hate you. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And I believe, again, beloved, this is where I know I do and where the world, where the church often misses the point of following God. If we're really living the way God instructs us to live, the way His holiness lives, the world is going to hate us. The world is not going to like us. So let's think about that. The reason is your holy life condemns theirs. And they don't like that. The projection of what you are giving out of the Spirit of God from you to them is going to condemn them. In other words, the sinful heart does not want sin pointed out in it. It does not. It's like the statement I made last Sunday. People do not like unsolicited advice, right? Well, people also don't like sin pointed out in their hearts. And that's where the problem is. When you live righteously according to what the Lord says, whether it's with words or whether it's with some kind of action or anything special, the world is going to notice that. Whether you realize it or not or whether I realize it or not, the world is going to notice that and it's going to be because it's so contrary to the way they're living their life. And that's noticeable. And because of that, the world is going to want to get rid of you. And they're going to try to get rid of you in some means, in some way. Now, it may be the extreme we'll talk about next time through physical suffering or it's going to be through some way of rejection. One commentator said this, righteousness is confrontational. Righteousness is confrontational. Just think about that statement for a second. To live righteously means there is going to be confrontation. It is a fact in the spirit world of God. In fact, if you look with me or think with me for just a minute about a couple examples, I I went back in my mind to some people that I could come up with that lived what we're talking about here, and Joseph was one of the first, and there are many, but Joseph in the Old Testament was one of them. You remember his brothers hated him. They were very jealous of him for various reasons, so much so that they wanted to kill him. Now think with me, the text tells us nothing really other than God had given to him the ability to uh, interpret dreams. But his brothers became very jealous of him, probably because dad was more in love with him than the others. Don't know. That's basically what the text brings out. They sold him into slavery. But thankfully, Joseph, who was a man of God, understood that God was behind it because in Genesis 45 we're told in verse 4, that Joseph said to his brothers, and this is after they had come into the awareness that this was Joseph again. I won't take time to go through all of this story. If you've never read that, I would encourage you to go back and read the book of Genesis and uh, these chapters on Joseph's life, and you'll pick up on that. But later, as the brothers began to be aware of where this was actually Joseph, and Joseph recognized these were his brothers, Joseph said to them, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And here's the key. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph understood that God was behind all of this. It was God who was motivating all of this. In Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, this is the famous verse we've often heard, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
Joseph was a man who understood that, listen, behind all of this working is the Lord himself. Moses understood the same thing as he sacrificed himself from all the riches that Egypt had to offer him. In chapter 11, this wonderful faith chapter, we're told that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then there's Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, you remember the life of Daniel as a godly young man was taken captive into Babylon, but yet lived righteously in the presence of everybody, and God used him greatly. In chapter 6, verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. In other words, because Daniel was such a man of God, these guys hated him. There were people who hated Moses. Brothers hated Joseph because of their righteousness. And so these leaders of, so, of sorts got together and went to the king and said, hey, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's making us look bad. And then in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered the house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel was a man of prayer. And so as much as they were trying to get the king to create an edict that would condemn anyone who would be praying to another God, Daniel didn't do that. He kept on doing the life and living the life that he knew was right. In verse 16, the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. In other words, that's a whole other part of this. But the king loved Daniel and really didn't want to have to go through with his edict, but he had no choice. The point being more so, though, is that here we have at least three examples of people from Scripture that were living righteous lives and the result was they were uh, persecuted for it. And that's the truth of any of God's people. I can't verify this story, but many years ago I heard a, of an illustration of Billy Graham was invited by a friend of his who was a professional golfer to go out and play golf one afternoon. And he invited, this guy also invited an unsaved friend of his because he wanted Billy Graham to be able to witness to it. Well, so the story goes is that as they were playing their rounds of golf, the guy who was the unsaved man continued to get more and more upset about his golf game and eventually started using profanity. Finally, he just threw his club into the pond. And his, the guy who invited both of them went over and said, Hey, what's going on? What's the problem here? You're getting so upset about a game. And he says, Oh, it's that Billy Graham. And he's like, wow, Billy Graham's really coming down hard on you? I mean, I haven't heard him even talking to you. He says, no, he hasn't said a word to me. It's just the fact that he's here. Now, that's kind of a simple, silly illustration, but I took it to, to mean that just because we live righteously in this life, we don't have to say anything. But the world will take notice of that righteousness because it's so contrary to the way that we're living our lives, the way that they're living their lives. 
And they will be convicted by it. And they will have to respond in some way. And one of those responses the Lord is telling us now is, when you live these first beatitudes, the response from the world is typically going to be, this person has to go. But blessed are you because of this. And he explains even more fully. You know, even as a preacher, it's kind of amazing, comical. I shouldn't say that really, but it is kind of comical to me at times that people will often later find out, depending on the scenario, that I'm a pastor, and immediately their language changes. It's kind of funny. It happened just the other day where we were in the presence of somebody who was using some pretty bad language, and I was in the context of the, the gym, and um, then it came up, and I purposefully kind of hold back. I probably shouldn't do that, but I hold back, and people, will, I'll usually ask them, what do you do for a living, and blah, 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 and then they'll ask me, and I'll, oh, all of a sudden, the language has changed. And I mean, oh, yeah, 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 okay, you know, and things begin to change. It's that, that's the point, though, is that there is a sense of conviction that comes, not because we're anything great, but because God is great in us. You understand that? God is great in us through his own power. Now, just so we understand, being a follower of Christ is when you live according to God's plan, right? When we live according to his plan, we're going to live completely contrary to what the world wants us to do, and they're going to hate us for it. But it's not because we, it's not because we follow Christ. It's because of how badly Satan hates Jesus. And he wants to destroy us because of that, because he is the prince of this world. And so to go against him is to experience persecution. It's going to be to experience the dreads of everything that he wants to attack us with. And Jesus said that too in John 16:33. He said, we shouldn't be surprised. He said, these things I have spoken to you. In other words, I've told you this so that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have trouble. It's going to happen. But take courage because I have overcome the world. That word tribulation, when you look it up, just simply means affliction, anguish, distress, or even persecution. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm being honest with you right now. You need to understand that in this world, this is going to happen if you're a follower of me. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As you hear these statements, if your heart does what mine does, it brings a sense of conviction, doesn't it? Listen again to what Paul said to Timothy. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because Jesus suffered. We suffer because Jesus suffered. He suffered for us. We're going to suffer for him. In John 15, 18, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. And there have been many people over the years that have suffered greatly because of their belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the point is that with this that we've got to make sure that we're hearing the Lord first, that if we're living godly, 
We're going to be persecuted. We've got to make sure that we're not taking it personally because it's really all about Jesus, right? We're not, that's why Jesus commands us not to fight back, not to do the things that would be the building up of the flesh and antagonism towards those that are persecuting us. But remember, we're being persecuted simply because we belong to Jesus. And the world hates Jesus. This God that loves us, the one who provided everything for us, the world hates. And the world's going to hate us. And the hard reality, beloved, is that if we're not, and here's the flip side of all of this, and I hope this is already starting to come clear to you, and this is why it was so convicting to me, if we're not living godly in this life, we're not going to be persecuted. In other words, if we're not persecuted or suffering for Christ, there may be a question mark that needs to be thought about. I mean, the Lord has made it very clear. There's a reason to question our dedication. There's a reason to question even our salvation if we're not being persecuted. And I'm not saying we should go running looking for it. But if there's not someone or some scenario in our lives that's questioning who we are, and even antagonistic to us in some form. Again, we'll talk about that more later next time. There's a reason for us to question our relationship with the Lord. Let me read you something. When Christians are not persecuted in some way by society, it means they are not, that they are reflecting rather than confronting that society. And when we please the world, we can be sure that we grieve the Lord. The fact that many professed believers are popular and praised by the world does not indicate that the world has raised its standards, but that many who call themselves by Christ's name have lowered theirs. That's an amazing statement. But that becomes the obvious reverse of everything that Jesus was just saying, is that if we're not in some way encountering challenges to us in this life in a spiritual sense it's because there's something wrong with us so I guess we could say the way to avoid persecution is pretty easy I mean, if we don't want to be in any way challenged by anybody spiritually we just ignore it keep quiet about the truth just don't say anything about Jesus don't ever bring him up just don't even worry about the gospel. Enjoy what God has given you and forget the world. That's a way to forget persecution and be free from it. If you just stay quiet, it's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to cost me anything. You know, I think Satan just loves for us to just be quiet about the gospel. He, he doesn't care about us coming in here to the service. I think a lot of times Satan is probably like, okay, boring. Go ahead, have your little service. Sing your little worship songs. Enjoy your time with God and with each other. But again, don't bring it out here into my world. As long as you keep quiet, I'll leave you alone. But the minute you start saying anything about Jesus, whether through your actions or through your words, or just telling somebody you belong to a God-fearing God church and a Bible-believing church, then Satan's going to have something to say about it. And Jesus says, my people who are truly my people will encounter that. In other words, his people are not going to be quiet. Unfortunately, the church today has done way too much over the latter years being quiet. In fact, it seems like the church today, for the most part, is not speaking out about sin at all. 
not really turning to God at all in the way that we should be. We seem to be more concerned concerned about social issues and the issues of man than we are about the spiritual things of God. And that's just true across the board. Someone wrote this. We've tried to make the gospel inoffensive. We've tried to understand what people who are unconverted like and don't like and remove the part they don't like and make the gospel tolerable to them. We've stripped it out of its impact. We've taken the law out. We've taken the bite out. We've taken the confrontation out to make it as palatable as possible. And in most cases, we've stripped the truth to the point where there is no longer any saving truth. I mean, if you want to escape persecution, you can do it. Just approve what the world does. Instead of disapproving it, just affirm it or ignore it. Accept the world's, the world's morals, the world's ethics. Live as they live. Don't tell people they're sinners. Don't confront them with the fact that they're lost and without Christ. Doomed to eternal judgment at the hands of Almighty God. Don't talk about hell. Don't preach and teach that Jesus Christ is the only way and, the, and only by faith in Him and not through some religious exercise, some ceremony, some self-righteousness can salvation be gained, but only by faith in Him. Don't separate yourself from the world system around you. Go along with it, laugh at its jokes, enjoy its entertainment, smile when it mocks God, let them take his name in vain, be ashamed to take a stand for Christ, and you will escape some persecution. That's an amazing and great statement. Do you feel the conviction that I feel when I read things like that? Do you kind of just look at your life and say, ooh, is there anyone that really is convicted by the Spirit of God because of my life? I mean, this is what the Lord has said. For those of us that truly belong to Him, I mean, even to live a holy life in solitude is to be quiet about sin. I mean, there's a sense of joy in, in living by ourselves and not dealing, not dealing directly with the community out here and, and obeying the commandments of the Lord, there's a sense of peace in that, but that's against what the Lord tells us. And he has some very hard things to say to people who deny him publicly. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's a powerful word from the Lord, isn't it? To be ashamed of Him simply means to be quiet about what it means to turn to Him and what this person just wrote just a second ago. And it's really not just a denial of Jesus, but it doesn't help the person who's stuck in their sin. It doesn't rescue someone out of the bondage that they're in. It doesn't help them. It doesn't benefit them. Because if they don't see their unrighteousness, how are they going to ever turn to a God of righteousness? We become the vehicles that God has given to proclaim His Word. We're the avenue through whom God makes Himself known, either through our own actions or through our words or whatever the means might be. We are the people that God has selected from eternity past to be His spokesmen and women. But unfortunately, all too often, we're more concerned about how we're going to be affected and how we're going to be viewed and what people are going to think about us instead of what's really right to rescue souls. 
And you all know well enough that we're not talking about staging rallies that cause problems and and creating these defenses and and being the kind of blight on society that looks like the world, but we just call it Christianity. That's why Jesus went through the Beatitudes that he did, because he wants us to understand, first and foremost, this is the heart of the individual, this is the attitude of the individual, now this is the life of the individual. And when that life is lived out in public, it's going to be persecuted. One of the saddest accounts of a person living in hell forever is given to us in Luke 16, in verse 23. This is a story about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man dies without God and he goes into Hades. And in Hades, verse 23, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. In other words, Lazarus is there in the paradise with with God. And this man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus the bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, because of us, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And I kind of hear this rich man, if I was going to put it in my own language, crying out to the Lord, Listen, Father, please, please, please send someone to go to my family to tell them so that they don't come to this place. Knowing that there is no hope without that. Could God save people without the workings of his people? God can do anything, but that's not what he has chosen to do. He's chosen to use each of us. Listen, the way to eternal life is through submission to Jesus, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, trusting him as the debt payer, and he's going to apply his blood to us. His righteousness will cleanse us. He'll pay the debt for us. But the way to hell is a wide road. It's a wide path. It's easy. There's not many bumps along the way. There's not many jagged edges. It's smooth. It's well paved. It looks just like the way to peace and pleasure and happiness. But at the end is a far different place. And there are many people that are spiraling downward into that place. So the point is, not that we can't have peace in this life. There are many days of peace. Even Jesus and the disciples had days of peace. There was no question about that. But that was not the point. The point was they were working their lives righteously to the place where they knew. And Jesus had told them this, that it would come to him being nailed on a cross. Now the cross became the place where our debts paid and the sins are paid for. But the cross also was the place for the criminals. In the Romans' mind, they were putting to death a man who was antagonistic to the community, a man who was living opposite of the way that they believed that the people should live in the community, and that was true. So they proclaimed him as a criminal. But the reality is they couldn't understand spiritually what Jesus was and who he was. And so the only way to deal with him was to get rid of him, and that was also the way that the Jews thought of him, those that were supposed to know, the ones who were blinded to the truth who were not living their lives in such a way that they were being persecuted. And so very clearly then, again, the seven Beatitudes deal with the heart. 
This eighth one now conveys the heart's willingness to take on something that they may not really want to take on, but it is necessary to follow Christ. And that is to say that, Lord, whatever you send my way, I will be willing to, to endure it, whatever that may mean. That's where, unfortunately, many Christians break down. That's where the church often breaks down. In other words, again, back to what I said in the very beginning, we don't mind so much dealing with the first ones, but when it comes to this one, that's a little bit more challenging. Now, you and I don't know what it's like really, honestly, to be persecuted like many people are across the world. Again, we'll deal with that next time. But for this one, we can understand that this is the place most people are tempted to compromise. It's when we get to this one. It's where we lower our standards often. It's where we avoid the conflicts. Again, because the flesh really doesn't want anything to do with pain. And so if this is going to be painful, I'd really rather not go there. But all of that devalues the gospel and really leaves no fruit at all and leaves people to die in their sins. In fact, in Revelation 20, you know these passages well, and we'll close with these. John says at the very end of all of his revelation of Jesus, I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? Well, according to Revelation 19.20, it is that place that burns perpetually with fire and brimstone. The place that the false prophet and the antichrist also called the beast is cast into in chapter 19 and the lord is saying to us listen for those who have rejected me this is their ultimate resting place which is not going to be a resting place it's going to be the place of total destruction but a destruction that never ends as hard as that is to believe it'll be a perpetual place of torment because they have rejected the holiness of god and even in the book of Daniel, Daniel said in Daniel 7:11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and then given to burning fire. All of those who reject the saving work of God will be cast into the same place. And Jesus foretold all of this in Matthew 13 and Matthew 25, just as the tares are gathered and burned up with fire and the people would have understood his illustration. So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 41 of chapter 25, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Suffering is a part of following Christ. If we choose not to follow Jesus, there'll be a temporary peace, but it very well could be that we are not following Christ at all. 
It's either an act of rebellion and disobedience that God will deal with in his own way or it is an act of a heart that has no desire to truly follow the Lord, which questions the salvation. Beloved, listen. Take the challenge. If you're not being persecuted in some way, if you don't feel the sting of some form of animosity towards you from the world in some shape or fashion, there's reason to question whether we're being obedient to the Lord. That's the convicting note in all of this. Am I living the life that God really says that I'm to live as a child of His? Am I enjoying the blessings of what God is providing for me in my heart? Happy am I if that's the case. But as Jesus gets to this last one, and I believe looking at those faces on the crowd that are sitting around him and the people that are gathering at the bottom of the mountain and all the multitude, I have to believe that there was a great concern on the hearts of many. Because when it comes to this one, this is where the the fold usually divides. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Suffering for Christ is a part of it all, but that's the road that paves the way to true happiness. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, as always, for the truth of your word and very, very convicting, uh, Lord, that we should hear your words this morning. What a contrast to the way that we think of life and how we believe it should be. As we've learned now over the last many weeks that we've been studying these Beatitudes, we understand that there's a sense of anxiety, humanly speaking, in denying ourselves the pleasures of this life and enjoying what it means to follow you and the sense of happiness that all of that brings the trusting in you for everything. Lord, I have to admit that even as, a, as, a, as an adult, it's comforting, childlike, to understand that you really are capable and desire to provide everything for us. That we have nothing to worry about, which is what you'll talk about later in this, in this sermon. But you've literally said to us, we have nothing to concern ourselves with. And there's such a happiness that comes with that. Lord, what a challenge to our souls as we hear you say that for those of us that will live for you, we will be persecuted. And we really just don't like that. Our soul resists that. Our flesh resists that. But this is the way. This is the way to life, to eternal life. And so, Lord, as your people this morning, may you show us throughout these coming days, this week specifically, as we begin to reflect on part two of what you say more specifically how this looks in a tangible way, that we would begin to ask ourselves some questions. Do I truly belong to the Lord? Am I living my life for him? If I stood beside someone of the world, would there be any difference? Would my friends be able to notice that there is a contrast between my heart and theirs? Would my coworkers know that there's a distinction between me and them? Would my neighbors know that I belong to Christ and I attend Laurel Hill Baptist Church and I listen and believe the Word of God? Lord, these are the challenging thoughts. These are the challenging questions. Or are we people who just internally take to ourselves the truth and remain quiet, live a life that 
It does not show you at all just to keep the peace. Lord, far be it from us to live that way. Help us in a loving, gracious, merciful, peaceful way be the contrast to the world, that the world may take notice and wonder about us and want to know more about you. That's really our goal, to be a tool in your hand, to be a part of rescuing. So, Lord, help us to follow your path and your plan, we pray, through the giving of our monies, through our times, through our talents, through all the things that we do in this life, that we may reflect your glory. And then we pray all of this and ask you to just bury it deep in our hearts that we may live openly for you as a light on a hill. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.